Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This show was pre-recorded on November 17th, so we are not taking listener calls or questions. We are interested in your comments, though. You can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is the ninth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is titled, Freedom of Religion, Freedom from Religion, Politics and Religion in America. We'll talk about the constitutional foundation of the separation of church and state. Why is it important? Is freedom of religion in the Bill of Rights? Or how did the doctrine emerge and develop from the prohibition on the establishment of religion in the First Amendment? How is the interpretation and practice of that amendment affecting modern politics? And um, what is the intersection of political activism and religious belief now and in our history? This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the Democracy Forum. Let me introduce our guests. Mark Brewer is the Professor of Political Science and Department Chair at the University of Maine. He's been on our show a few times before. Welcome back, Mark. Thank you, Ann. Pleasure to be here. And Vincent Philip Munoz is the Tocqueville Associate Professor of Religion and Public Life in the Department of Political Science and also concurrently Associate Professor of Law at Notre Dame University. Welcome, Philip. Thanks so much for having me. So pleased to have you here. At a three-day conference in San Antonio last week, former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn called for Christianity to become the singular religion of the United States. He said, if we're going to have one nation under God, which we must, we have to have one religion. This is a position that Pew Research Center finds supported by fewer than a third of American people. Still, that's 30% who agree with him, and it's 30% that probably votes pretty reliably. It's 30% that might, might form a likely base, loyal base for one of the two major political parties. So we want to talk today is, is the separation of church and state in trouble? Should we worry? Why should we worry? So, Philip, I'd like to put it to you first. Um, to just give us a little history, I know we could spend the whole hour just on this, but what is the constitutional foundation of the separation of church and state? How did it originate in our founding documents, and how was it argued among the founders? Yeah, sure. Well, again, thanks for having me, Anne, and it's a pleasure to be here with Professor Brewer, whose work I know and admire very much. I mean, you ask very, very big questions that are hard to give succinct or coherent answers to. Um, but let me try this. I mean, the, the foundation of both the separation of church and state uh, and the separation of the idea of re religious freedom uh, both flow from the idea that the authority of government is limited. There are some things uh, that government uh, can't do and shouldn't do. We, uh, the way the founders talked about that was the idea of inalienable rights or unalienable rights, as they would say. There are certain um, authorities over our lives we don't turn over to the government. And uh, first and foremost for, for them was uh, the, the right of religious free exercise or freedom to worship according to conscience. So in their understanding, I think this is still our understanding too, uh, it's not the business of the government uh, to tell us uh, where to go to church or even to go to church. Freedom, from, freedom for religious exercise is also freedom from religious exercise. So 
you can't uh, you can't be punished for going to the wrong religion. You can't uh, be punished uh, for not going to a religious service, and you can't be punished by the state for doing that because the state has no authority or jurisdiction over our religious exercises, or at least to dictate our religious exercises to us or their lack thereof. So that's that's the foundational concept. The idea that there are certain there's a certain realm of of uh, our freedom, or if you want, our autonomy or our privacy, that is just no business of the government um, to enter. And I think that that's the core concept. That's both the foundation of what we now call the separation of church and state, but more fundamentally, what we call the right to religious freedom. And I know Madison wrote a lot about freedom of conscience, which I th think is part of these inalienable inalienable rights that Philip talked about. But I mean, what was Madison's idea about con conscience in the free exercise of a person's conscience, Mark? Well, I mean, certainly Madison thought that, the you know, to, to kind of a follow up on what Philip said, Madison certainly was, you know, very much a supporter of this idea um, that the state had um, no role in any way whatsoever in interfering with the individual conscience, right? Um, and even and he would go even further than that and saying even if the state misguidedly did try and do so that it would be unable to do that right it would be unable to be successful because there would be no way for the state to really determine if it was in fact changing or altering or controlling the individual conscience so you know he he, he kind of saw it in, in those two um, lenses I suppose founders um, think about non-christian religions were there non-Christian, I mean, what was the presence of non-Christian people in the early colonies and how tolerant were the founders of those? I see you nodding there, Mark. Well, I mean, I, I think it depends depends on the founder, right? It, it, we often talk about the founders as if they're monolithic and they're not. Um, so we need to be a little bit careful on that. Um, but if we look at certain founders, you know, we look at, for example, uh, Jefferson or Washington, um, we have in the documents, some of the documents that have survived of their ex clear, explicit statements of toleration for non-Christians. There weren't a whole lot of non-Christians uh, in the United States of the founding era. You know, roughly um, almost four million people, the vast majority of them were Christians or at least identified as such. But there were some non-Christian um, communities. Uh, there was, for example, a relatively decent sized Jewish community in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, there were uh, Jewish communities in Philadelphia and New York City. Um, so there were some, there were certainly some non-Christians and at least some of the more well-known founders were tolerant um, of those communities. I want to go to Philip now on this one. Um, it, it seems as though the founders, at least some of them, thought that religious teaching was essential to moral citizenship. Like if you didn't get raised up learning Christian morality, you were not going to be qualified uh, to be a good citizen. I mean, that founder founders weren't really secular humanists, were they? I mean, we may have to define for our listeners what a secular humanist is, but they weren't really embracing that whole thing that you could be a fully moral person without God, or were they? Well, yeah, I think you're right to suggest that we have to be careful about uh, imposing our terms and our categories onto them. I think that's that just doesn't work and you fail to understand their thought. In my teaching, I, I always try to convey to my students, look, your, your first object is to understand the fathers as they understood themselves. Then you, you can evaluate them. They're right, they're wrong, they're partially right, whatever. But you don't want to impose um, contemporary categories onto their thought because that distorts their their thought. Um, let, me, let me just follow up on what Mark said and what you alluded to, Anne, the, 
George Washington's letter to the Hebrew congregation in Rhode Island, because I think it really is um, uh, one of the most beautiful letters in American history and also captures the founders shared understanding. I think Mark is exactly right that founders disagreed on all sorts of things when it came to practical politics concerning church and state, uh, but they, they all agreed on the fundamental principle of the right of religious freedom. So this is, um, I, I, I happen to have it just right here. I'm going to read you, but I, I, it really is just strikingly, and this is um, 1790, I believe. Uh, Washington writes, um, it is now more, it is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it were the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their inherent natural, natural rights. For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens and giving it on all occasions their effectual support. To get back to your first question about um, uh, did you, uh, do you have to be a Christian to be a good American, uh, from the very beginning, the, fa the founders say, and I think most of us would say today, no, you know, no, this is... Uh, a nation where religious free, the religious freedom of all, including the freedom of those without a religion, is regarded and, re and respected. So the freedom from religion, as we talked about in our title, was there from the very beginning. Like well, they, it depends what you it depends what you mean by these terms. I mean these are huge terms, and they mean different things to different people. So you have to define your terms. The right to exercise the right to worship, as one sees fit, jurisdiction over that right is not given to the government. So one can worship as one understands. Uh, one cannot worship. Uh, the same freedom protects both the, the person without a religion and the person with a religion. Now, when people say freedom from religion, they, I think they mean something different. Uh, on the political uh, uh, usefulness uh, of religion, I mean, the founders certainly believed a free people had to be a moral people, right? A free people had to govern itself. Um, the, the more you need the state to correct um, behavior, right? You can't have a limited government, a, a, a government that aims to secure liberty if the people are constantly violating one another's rights, right? So, and by morality, I mean something very simple, just um, what the founders thought, you know, not interfering with other people's freedom, not stealing, not, um, you know, being a decent person. Um, so the question for them was, um, how do we cultivate the moral character that makes self-government possible? And uh, some founders like George Washington thought that religion was essential to that. Most thought religion was helpful. The disagreement was, did religion need the help of government? Um, some founders, again, like Washington said, well, religion is necessary for morality and morality is necessary for government. Therefore, government should help cultivate religion. Other founders like Madison said, uh, religion might be necessary for for uh, liberal government, uh, uh, but liberal government isn't necessary for religion. And so by um, religion doesn't need the help of government. It will flourish on its own. In fact, government help might harm religion. Uh, but they all, they all agree that morality was necessary. It was just different prudential understandings on how to best cult the, the, the moral sense of the people. So they weren't really thinking about Christianity necessarily when they talked about God, or maybe they were. I mean, God is in some of those founding documents, right, Mark? Well, let, Mark. let me just say, I mean, the, the, it's yes and no on that. I mean, it's they're um, in, in the most obvious ways, no, because they don't talk about it's religious freedom. It's not just freedom for Christians. 
Um, uh, one other example here is um, what I thought Mark might refer to your earlier question was the federal constitution prohibits religious tests for office. Religious tests for office were very common at that time of founding. I don't know what Maine's, you know, Maine, Maine wasn't a state uh, in 1780, but the Massachusetts constitution to be governor, you had to be Protestant. And that was not untypical. Uh, the founders con uh, in the federal constitution, there's no religious test for office. And some people complained about that, especially in the Northeast, actually. Um, if, uh, if there are no religious tests for office, the Anti-Federalists said, um, these were people against the ratification of the Constitution, then Catholics might be, uh, Catholics and Mahometans, that was their term, and atheists might hold office. And James Madison's response to that was, well, if they win the votes of the people, then that's fine and just. So they were very well aware of uh, non-Christians might be citizens, non-Christians might hold office, and uh, leading founders like Madison said that was perfectly fine. Well, I want to give Mark a chance to comment on this, but also throw into the Constitution in our research, in, in the conversation that in our research for the show, we found that some states still have those religious tests in their Constitution. I assume they're sort of unenforceable, but, um, I, you know, I think, or what do you think, Mark? I mean, is that a sign that a certain segment of American people still think that that test should be applied? Well, I, I don't know. I, I think there is probably actually there is no doubt a certain segment of the American population that wishes those tests were still applied. I, I don't know that I would link those to what are certainly vestigial structures left in state constitutions. But at, at the time that those were at the time of the federal constitution being ratified, certainly there were many states that had those religious tests for office. They continued to have them after the ratification of the federal constitution. Um, there were some states that had formal establishment, you know, um, of religion in their state constitutions and, and kept that uh, after uh, the federal constitution was ratified. I believe New Hampshire was the last one to have theirs on the books, but I could be wrong on that. Um, but it was it was decades um, after the federal constitution been ratified. I do think it's important, and, and Philip kind of pointed this out, but I think it's important for us to acknowledge how kind of radical the federal drafters of the Constitution were in their no religious tests for public office. I mean, that that's a pretty big departure. And also in, in you know, kind of believe the federal government had no role in establishing um, an official state church, right? Because the predominant view at the time among not just the average American, but many educated Americans at the time too would have been, sure, um, the state does have a role in both of those things. So I think it is important to point out um, just how radical that those kind of views were. Let me do a little station break here, then we'll come back to the conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is freedom of religion, freedom from religion, politics and religion in America. Our guests are Mark Brewer, Professor of Political Science and Department Chair, University of Maine, and Vincent Philip Munoz, Tocqueville Associate Professor of Religion and Public Life in the Department of Pol Political Science and concurrently Associate Professor of Law at Notre Dame University. This program was pre-recorded on November 17th. No listener calls are being taken. So I want to ask, um, maybe we'll go to you, Phil, for a minute to talk a little bit about how important courts, court decisions since the founding have sort of clarified what freedom of religion actually means in American practice. 
Yeah, well, I don't know that they've clarified anything. If, if anything, <laughs> they've just confused matters. Um, so let me, I mean, there was, you mentioned um, that you found um, these uh, religious tests for office. Um, they, they have been struck down. It doesn't mean that they're still, when, when a, a, uh, the Supreme Court struck this down in a case called uh, uh, Torcaso v. Watkins, uh, it's in, that's in the 1960s. And then there was a, another case, I think it's 1978, the, around that time, if that's not the exact called McDaniel v. Patty. These cases effectively ended the ability of a state to uh, have religious tests for office, uh, but the provisions don't automatically get removed. I mean, I guess you'd have to have a constitutional amendment to remove the provisions. They can't be enforced consistent with the federal constitution, but they're still there on the books, uh, as it were. Um, and as Mark suggested, there are vestiges. I mean, you you um, you ask about uh, Supreme Court precedents. Um, let me, again, this is a huge uh, uh, a huge uh, question, which not only could I take the remaining time, I could take um, a whole semester. I was going to uh, say your question. So, um, let me, so there's some. Let me just point to the first big establishment clause case to start us off. Um, in 1947, the Supreme Court said the First Amendment erects a wall of separation between church and state. I mean, that's common parlance now. If you ask most people um, uh, what the First Amendment says about religion, they might say a wall of separation. Um, but but that term or that phrase, wall of separation, doesn't actually appear in the Constitution. It appears in no state constitution. Um, the Supreme Court got it from a letter that Jefferson wrote in 1802 after the Constitution and the First Amendment were adopted. Um, uh, so that um, uh, set a course for Supreme Court jurisprudence, certainly didn't clarify anything. And um, the wall of separation understanding is still a standing precedent. Everson hasn't been overturned. Everson versus Board of Education is the name of that 1947 case. But what it means has been, you know, uh, fiercely contested ever since. Was that a school funding case? Yes, it was. Uh, the specific facts were it involved uh, uh, state funding, actually not of religious schools, but of transportation costs. Uh, kids, uh, there were no school buses back then. So it was a New Jersey case and uh, kids uh, could take the bus uh, to uh, schools, whether uh, private or Catholic schools or public schools in the state, uh, this township, Ewing Township in New Jersey, reimbursed the bus fare costs. You know, kids would take the city bus. Um, and the question for the court was, uh, can the state uh, township, the state actor, reimburse the transportation costs for kids going to the Catholic schools? And the answer was no. Well, the answer was yes, but um, <laughs> it's confusing because the answer was yes. But at the same time, the court majority, uh, all nine justices, including the majority, said uh, the First Amendment erects a wall of separation. Uh, you can't fund religion in any way, shape or form. So the four dissenters said um, the, the doctrine is right, but the result is inexplicable. It's a direct contradiction. The court does this sometimes. I, I think I think you know the Everson case to me is the epitome of what establishment law is and what the court has done. Right? It's it's no clearer today than it was there. It's hotly contested. You know, a five four decision where everybody agrees. You know, as Philip pointed out, that there is this wall of separation of church and state. And I think you're absolutely right. I, when I my students almost universally think that that phrase comes from the Constitution when it doesn't. None of them um, know that that the court quotes Jefferson's letter, and then virtually none of them um, know who Roger Williams is, which is probably where Jefferson uh, pinched it, it from in the first place, right? Um, but they, that, that case epitomizes what the court's done on establishment. It's, it's as clear as mud. Um, yeah. So I was, I was kind of laughing at the question, you know, when you asked Philip, 
to clarify this, I thought, well, we might as well end the interview here, right? <laughs> well, and I mean, as long as we're on it, how many of these challenges um, have come up about school funding? Because, Mark, you know, we've got this one from Maine coming up, this Carson v. Macon, that's going to SCOTUS this year that had to do with um, a school in Washington County and a law that passed. And now the Department of Education has interpreted that law to mean um, no funding for religious schools and religious schools are challenging. And go ahead, Mark, you talk about. No, I can't give you a specific number, but it is it is a pretty high percentage of um, establishment clause cases, at least recently involve education, whether it's um, pre-K through 12. There's a few that involve higher education as well, but there are I don't know this for sure, but I'm just kind of I'm doing a running tally in my head. And I think if I counted all of the establishment clause cases the court has heard since 1947, probably around 40 to 50 percent of them involve schools. I don't know. Philip can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but it is a lot of them for sure. Um, and I think the, the most recent case that to me kind of sticks out on establishment is the school vouchers case from Cleveland, the Zellman uh, case from 2000 and two or one, 2001, 2002, I believe, um, where the, the court seemed to kind of push the lemon test to the side, although some would say no. Uh, another example of how unclear things are, um, which allowed um, state funds to, to be provided for vouchers to be used at religious schools. But part of the reasoning was that the money wasn't really going to religious schools. The court said because it was going in vouchers to parents first. It was almost like parental money laundering, which is the same thing that was happening in the Everson case because the money wasn't going to the Catholic schools. It was going to the parents, right? Yeah. So there's all this nuance here, um, which is great if you're into kind of the, the arcane details of the Supreme Court, which I am, but if you're <laughs> an average person trying to make sense of what is allowed and what's not allowed, it's not super yeah, helpful. Which we are. And I mean, you know, we did a couple shows on the civic mission of public education. And, you know, some of what we learned from that was that one of the reasons why America had universal public education was to educate for citizenship, right? And so the state interest in having an educated citizenry was where this all came from. And it does sort of beg the question, like, is it possible for a school not to be educating for citizenship, even they're maybe providing literacy, but maybe not civics? Um, does the state have an interest in, or is that just an, an entitlement that everybody gets an equal shot at as a parent? Philip, what do you think? I'll let Philip jump in on that in just a moment, but I also <laughs> want to just point out that the part of the reason why we also, another part of the reason why we have public education is to inculcate Protestantism uh, again and anti-nativist against anti-Catholic. So, I mean, that's also an important component of the origins of public education in the United States. So, but I'll, I'll, I'll let Philip jump in and answer the question you actually asked. I know, that's great, Mark, thanks. Go ahead, Philip. No, no, Mark says it's an important uh, historical fact that was just sort of overlooked uh, today. You know, when um, what civic education is, of course, uh, is determined by the current civic leaders. So, um, there was certainly an anti-Catholic uh, bias in, I mean, this is why we have Catholic schools in the first place in America, right? Uh, Catholics formed their um, formed schools because they felt that the public schools, it probably were, uh, were basically Protestant schools. Uh, then the question comes up, well, you have these Catholic schools, can they receive funding? And um, that bus case, a, a lot of it was, we know from subsequent historical research, um, 
a lot of the reasoning of the wall of separation was really anti-Catholic in spirit. You know, we don't want these Catholics to be able to get public funds. Um, um, so civic education for some meant non or anti-Catholic mm -hmm. education. That's and it's just part of our history. I mean, it's unfortunate. Right. It is, but we shouldn't hide from that as well. Well, the, the case that's making its way up from Maine had it got its um, genesis because the school was not tolerant of uh, gender minorities and other minorities. And uh, so the challenge sort of originated from the fact that these schools were discriminating against their students and their teachers. And um, I think that's sort of the way this has gone forward. I, I don't know. Are you familiar with the case, Mark, at all? I'm familiar with it a, a little bit, but not um, not any of the details to say anything terribly informed on it. I mean, do you think it's likely that the court is going to allow public money to go to schools that dis discriminate against gay and trans kids and teachers? Uh, my guess is the Supreme Court is going to allow public money to go to private religious schools. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, yeah, I mean, I'd be stunned if the current Supreme Court uh, upholds that main that, ban on that. I, yeah. I'd be absolutely stunned. What do you think, Philip? Well, I, I would just need to know exactly how that ban is worded. I mean, I, I, I yeah. can't comment because I don't know the case or the laws at issue. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, so, we, so we talked a little bit about, um, you know, how this all came about. Now we're pretty clear that secular law can compel actions that might violate someone's religion, and that goes back to draft laws and con conscient conscientious objectors. Um, Religion-based laws, some would say abortion, um, can compel non-believers in a, in a certain way too. Where do exceptions and exemptions fit into this? When can you opt out of the law if you're a cake baker or if you don't want to take your vaccine um, on the basis of uh, religious belief? This is I, probably I, a, I, I'm, I'm, I need some clarification. You, you reference religion-based laws and secular-based laws. And how, how would you identify one uh, what makes a law secular and what makes a law religious? Well, that's totally my bias coming right through there. I'm sure that's true. But, uh, you know, I mean, let's just take the vaccine law, the, you know, vaccine mandates, which have, you know, probably no necessarily religious content to it, but people make a religious argument not to comply, right? And then, I mean, I could argue or might say from my own perspective that, um, uh, you know, abortion laws are based on religious belief and commitment and non-believers then have to, in Texas, for example, have to comply with somebody else's religious conviction. So I'm just using those as um, sort of examples, but maybe yeah, I, it's I not. I, I mean, I'm going to push back here because I don't think um, that the classifications you just made would hold up to actual scrutiny, right? Um, I mean, uh, That's why we're here. Well, let me ask, can, we right use, can we can we use um, secular? Can we use atheistic laws as a cinnamon cinnamon for secular? Sure. Um, yeah. So it, it's not. I mean, these categories are modern categories that emerge from a certain type of Protestantism. Right. The framework itself has a religious origin. The secular versus uh, religious. I mean, that itself is a product of a particular time and a particular religion, um, which I think we're um, somewhat blind to today. And it's just not the language that the Constitution was written in. It's not the language of the founders, for sure. I mean, they talked about their distinctions were um, nat uh, 
laws based on natural laws and positive laws is the language they used. Positive laws are just the laws that the state um, made. Um, by natural law, they just meant sort of the natural moral law or law of right or wrong um, before the law exists. And their idea was that the, the positive law should be consistent with the natural law, right? There's a right and wrong. You shouldn't steal someone else's property, right? Because you have a natural right to property. I mean, not sophisticated concepts. And therefore, the, we should have positive law to protect these things. Regarding religion, they said there's a, there's a realm, as I said earlier, there's a realm of freedom related to religious worship that the government doesn't have authority over. So their terms are really, uh, does the government have authority over this area of freedom or not? Not where the law is religiously motivated or secularly motivated. We're imposing their categories um, and at least all sorts of confusion. And I, I'm really going to push this point because this dichotomy itself, secular versus religious, is a, is a Protestant and then post-Protestant itself concept. It's a sectarian concept by which we're filtering everything, which will lead to all sorts of biases. Let me take a station break because we're getting right into it here. We may need a breather. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Mark Brewer, Professor of Political Science and Department Chair at the University of Maine, and Vincent Philip Munoz, Tocqueville Associate Professor of Religion and Public Life in the Department of Political Science and concurrently Associate Professor of Law at Notre Dame University. We're talking about freedom of religion, freedom from religion, politics and religion in America. This show was pre-recorded on November 17th, so we're not taking any listener calls or questions. We are interested in your comments, though. You can contact us at news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. So I was trying to get at ex, you know, the exceptions and where people um, make objector status and seek to, um, to get out of fulfilling the laws, I guess the positive laws that are made based on their religious conviction. But I mean, you're raising a very interesting topic here. And not like we don't really object to people of a religious faith getting together and trying to enact laws that comport with their beliefs. I mean, that's just political activism and we're all for political engagement, right? So we don't, we don't object to that. Do we? Well, I, I hope not. No, I mean, I mean, there's no, as we said, there's no religious uh, test for being a citizen. And I mean, that means you shouldn't be excluded from uh, both the obligations uh, of citizenship and also the rights of citizenship. And uh, a democratic government is the people um, through, you know, constitutional forms uh, advocating for their interests and their and their rights and uh, religious and non-religious citizens participate that in that, I would hope, equally. So, no, I, I, uh, I think um, I, 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 th I think it would be wrong to exclude anyone, uh, anyone's conception of justice from the public square. I mean, those conceptions have to be argued about and reasoned about. Is it an adequate conception? Um, but uh, prima facie, we don't exclude people because they're in the in-group uh, or, or they're in the out-group and there's an in-group with certain certain beliefs that you must. You uh, must I would agree with Philip there. And I, I think that, I think more critically maybe for our discussion is the founders most certainly wouldn't object to that i mean you know Mad madison makes it clear that that um not only is that, that that's normal right that is just the normal way that the, that human animals behave and are there some you know unsavory consequences of that in some cases sure 
Um, but Madison would then go further and say that's part of the reason why we designed this thing called the Constitution is to help to try and control those, um, you know, the mischiefs of faction, you know. So he certainly isn't, um, wouldn't be willing, and the, the other founders either wouldn't be willing to exclude um, groups on the basis of religious belief or non-belief. Um, well, and so then, I mean, let's take a recent example of something that really dramatically changed in American life in my lifetime, which was protection of rights for um, gay gay marriage and other gay civil rights. And, um, you know, so, okay, that finally turned the corner. The Supreme Court, Court did the job. Non-discrimination is the law of the land. And then here comes the cake baker who doesn't want to do it. And so what role does that kind of religious based objection play when these positive laws are framed to protect. Yeah, I, I think minorities. we have to be careful, though, with what the law with Obergefell is a Supreme Court case. In, in Obergefell, uh, the Supreme Court recognized um, a right to uh, same-sex marriage, right, that to, to have uh, a state couldn't, a state, or I guess it's all states because the federal government or federal government in Washington, D.C., if you have marriage laws, you can't only extend those marriage laws to um, uh, heterosexual couples. You also have to extend them to same-sex couples. But that doesn't mean there's a general right of non-discrimination uh, throughout the land. Those are traditionally um, you know, done at states, and various states have uh, non-discrimination ordinances that extend to um, you know, all sorts of range of people, including homosexuals, others don't. So it's a state level thing. So just got to make sure we um, understand what the Supreme Court decision said, but also what it what it didn't say. Mm -hmm. so, sorry, I've lost the thread of your question. <laughs> well, 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 no, I mean, I'm yeah. trying to I'm trying to get at how people object out of some of the the um, some of the laws that we're, we're talking about. And yeah, you, yeah let me, let me, let's go back to the exemption. That was where we, I, right. sort of, I apologize if I've sort of led us astray. You ask a very good and thoughtful question on, on exemptions. And that's where, um, how, what led us to there. Maybe the easiest way to talk about exemptions is to, t um, go, um, to something that's more familiar and older, uh, which is from draft laws. I mean, these, these go back all the way to the founding. So, um, Earlier, I was saying that. Um, are, are you going to say what a draft law is? Because oh, sure. There's just this, uh, you know, the 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 government needs troops, and oh, so the yes, government okay. com compels military you draft. to yes, okay. military service. Yep. Sorry, okay. A military draft. Um, I thought you meant like a rough draft, but go ahead. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> so um, clearly, this is a legitimate what we call state interest today, right, civic right. interest, right? I mean, the in a way, the first person, uh, the first uh, obligation of the government is to protect our in our lives and our property. Right, uh, and you need uh, troops to do that, military troops to do that. Uh, in times of war, you might have to draft troops. I mean, I think uh, most people would say all volunteer army is a, is a good thing, and hopefully lots of people will volunteer to serve their country in that way. But some, sometimes you need more troops than uh, volunteer to serve, and then you resort to a draft. That's legitimate. I mean, it's, it's a dramatic action to take a young man or, or woman, uh, if we extended the draft to women, and say, look, you must give up your freedoms and enter into military service uh, as part of your obligations to citizenship. At the time of the founding um, and today still, there, there are pacifists, um, religious believers who believe that they can't, because of their religious convictions, uh, that they, they can't serve uh, in, uh, in, in the armed forces. At the time of the founding, it was the Quakers, mm -hmm. right? Um, 
the founders' resolution of this issue, uh, I think, and people disagree here, uh, but my understanding is they said, well, clearly the draft itself is constitutional. Uh, Article one of the constitution gives the power to Congress to raise and support uh, an, arm, an army. Uh, and the draft is a reasonable way to do that. Uh, what the founders did is they legislated exemptions for those who are conscious, conscientiously, conscientious objectors who conscientiously objected <laughs> for military service. Sorry, that's a mouthful. Yeah. Uh, but the, the Supreme Court in the 1960s and 70s extended conscientious objection to those, um, and I know these are federal laws, and they said under federal law, uh, exemptions, um, you can't just favor only religious-based conscientious exemptions, but uh, non-religious. So if you have a philosophical objection to war, if, if you have a system of belief that serves like a religion in your life, even though it's not theistic, even though it doesn't might have nothing to do with God or religion, you also get a, can receive a conscious-based exemption. Um, so. So my understanding of these matters is there's no constitutional right to an exemption from the laws, um, though our practice has been to accommodate religious and non-religious believers to um, we don't in general like to force people to do uh, things against their conscience. And it's a mark, uh, many would say, I would certainly uh, include myself in this and say it's a mark of a tolerant people to do so. But circumstances matter, right? I mean, it, uh, it presumes there's going to be enough other people to fight. Right. And I mean, th this came up in Maine a couple of years ago with the vaccine mandates. And, um, you know, Maine originally had a religious exemption to vaccine mandates for public school attendance. And that um, got taken out. So, it, you know, then it was only a medical exemption that stood. So this is still sort of a hotly contested thing where religious exemptions play in. Mark, do you have thoughts about this? Well, I mean, I mean Philip, Philip gets it right on this. And, you know, I mean, Anthony and Scalia, in a number of, the, you know, the rulings that he made on various parts of the religious clauses of the First Amendment said, you know, that there is no, there is no requirement in the Constitution that federal government or the state governments give a religious exemption for a generally applicable state or federal law. They're not required to do so. Can they do so if they wish? Sure. Might it be a good idea in some cases? Sure. But they're not required to do that. And I, I think that's, I think that's, you know, where the founders were on this, that as long as it's a generally applicable, legitimate state law that you don't have to give a religious exemption on basis of the First Amendment or anything else, but might it be desirable to do so? Sure. Um, but it's not an obligation. And I think that's where we are. And, and so then circling back around to the cake baker again, I, I think the point you're making is that the reason that the um, Supreme Court found in his favor was because, was it Colorado, did not have a general non-discrimination law. Yeah, I mean, um, it's a little bit more precise than that, but it's basically that they um, treated the the uh, cake maker, uh, the, the facts of the case are, this was a, a custom a guy, um, trying to remember the name of the shop, Masterpiece Cake Shop. And he designed these custom uh, wedding cakes. And he, uh, for religious reasons, did not want to design a cake for um, uh, a same-sex couple. And so they brought a suit under the, um, I'm not sure if it was city or state's non-discrimination ordinance. I just don't quite remember. Uh, but anyways, there's a Colorado or Colorado city ordinance uh, that had, uh, uh, protected same-sex couples against uh, discrimination in, in uh, the business setting here. 
And um, the Supreme Court uh, basically sent the, the case back down saying uh, the, the, the officials uh, who um, uh, adjudicated this uh, case had religious animus or uh, anti-religious animus towards the cake baker. Uh, and so they uh, um, sort of erased what had been done. Mm -hmm. Didn't really resolve anything. Right. It's a case that got enormous amount of attention, but it didn't were, mean as what far we as I could tell. No significant okay. legal ruling came out of okay. out of the case. I don't know. Maybe maybe market. I mean, it's hard. These uh, um, simplifying what the Supreme Court does is sometimes impossible because right. it's not clear what they're actually doing. Well, and here we are, just lay people trying to grasp whether separation of church and state is real or whether it's a myth. And you know, you're trying to help us out here. You know, Mark said something earlier, which was very important, and he just said it in passing, but I, I thought it was really insightful, that when, when the Supreme Court makes a decision, whether on you know, religious freedom grounds or free speech grounds or any grounds, uh, um, equal protection grounds, when those decisions are so complicated that it requires experts to try to understand them, and even the experts sometimes get them wrong, um, what it means is the people don't know what their rights are. Yeah. And that makes it impossible to protect your rights. Yeah. So um, Mark made the comment that uh, unless you love the nuance of decisions, it's uh, sometimes the Supreme Court just jurisprudence can be frustrating. I would go even one step further. It, it's a disservice um, to citizens when the Supreme Court makes confusing or excessively nuanced decisions, because then we don't know what's legitimate or illegitimate, yeah. what's right, constitutionally right or constitutionally wrong. And it really empowers um, lawyers and the lawyerly class at the expense of ordinary citizens. So yeah. um, I'm a big proponent of uh, clear jurisprudence, <laughs> whatever it is, <laughs> so we know what the rules of the game are. Right, right. I appreciate that. I want to talk in the last um, third of the show, we've still got plenty of time, but I want to talk a little bit about the dangers of religious, uh, religious. I don't know what the right word here. Politicized religion is one thing. You know, when churches are taken over by political identities is sort of one aspect of this. And then the other aspect of it is when religion takes over government. And we see this in some autocratic and authoritarian governments um, emerging around the world right now. And I, I'd like to ask, I'll start with you, Mark, and then come back to you, Philip, to talk about what are the dangers when religion and government get into tight together well i think you're right in in the question it, it can implies that the dangers can cut in both directions and i think that's that's fair um if you look at if you're looking at this from the the concerns of the founders they tended to be much more concerned with the danger of the state corrupting religion right that that was that that was their primary concern in this whole thing and and then i think that even exists before the founders i mean one of the things that i did um in preparation for our discussion today is i i went back and read uh some of the exchanges between roger williams and john cotton and you know williams was adamant you know that 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 the state cannot interfere with the church because it's going to corrupt the church um, and that was relatively typical of Puritan thinking. It was the, the concern of religious influences on the state was much less pronounced, I would say, um, at the time. Now, today, I think that probably is where the bulk of 
of modern commentary goes, this concern of, oh, religion is having this, this huge influence on the state. But that was not the case uh, in the founding period. The concern was much more in the other direction. Well, and I want to uh, just ask about Christian nationalism and where that fits into this, because that's a case of the other side of it. But I, I'm going to do my last station break here. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther of the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Mark Brewer, Professor of Political Science and Department Chair at the University of Maine, and Vincent Philip Munoz Tocqueville, Associate Professor of Religion and Public Life in the Department of Political Science and Concurrent Associate Professor of Law at Notre Dame University. So let's talk about, um, to, to you, Philip, when religion um, takes over government and Christian nationalism, which we see emerging in some Western democracies, if you can call them that anymore. Yeah, well, I, I, again, I'm not exactly sure what you mean or what, if there's a common meaning of Christian nationalism. So I, I, I try not to use terms when different people might mean different things by them. And sometimes it, it, it serves to confuse things more than to clarify things. Um, uh, look, state power is dangerous for sure. Uh, and it always has been um, state state power uh, infused with uh, religious dogma uh, is especially dangerous um, in part because it oversteps the boundaries of the proper limits of the state. Right. Um, uh, the, uh, let me go back to where we be began with. I mean, the, this whole project of um, uh, the American Constitution. Uh, one of the primary limit. I mean, America came as people came to America as for purposes of religious freedom. And so one of the um, contributions of the American constitutional order, imperfect as it is, is that we demarcated limits on what the state can do vis-a-vis uh, -vis religion. Um, the state can't appoint um, church officials, right? This was common. I mean, who appoints the bishops? Well, the, the emperor or the king. That's really what the separation of church and state means first and foremost. Um, and religious and the state can't enforce religious dogmas. Um, you must go to church here. You must pray in this way, right? Uh, the state is not allowed to issue preaching licenses. Is another example. So you, you're licensed for everything. I mean, I'm, um, you know, to cut hair, to teach, um, uh, to practice law, to be an accountant. You must get a state license, uh, but not to preach. Why don't we have preaching licenses? Because it's no business of the state. So the real danger, I think, of the fusion or intertwining of religion and politics is that the the um, that fusion together leads the state to go beyond its competence or proper sphere, intrude into the private lives uh, where the state really has no business, right? Coercing worship or or uh, other such actions. Well, and I think you're right. When people use the term Christian nationalism, they're sweeping into that a whole suite of political issues that includes immigration and um, and racism and other kinds of things that are all under this sort of, sort of an umbrella. But, you know, when a prominent former member of government is calling for a Christian nation, I mean, we're all stunned and appalled. Do we, should we be scared about that or what, Mark? I, I mean, I assume you're referring to General Flynn's comments on that. And certainly, I mean, I think what most people, probably not everyone, but I think when most people today would reference Christian nationalism, they're referencing a, a belief, probably somewhat ill-held, but uh, nonetheless, a general statement that the state has some 
role and responsibility and obligation to keep the United States a quote unquote Christian nation, whatever you mean by that. Right. Yeah. Um, I think Flynn's comments, if that is what he is getting at are dangerous. Right. And I think the founders would see it that way. The founders would, would undoubtedly object to that statement. And we can see that as clear as day in the documents that they produce um, that have been passed down to us. Um, and you can certainly see the dangers of the state taking a more muscular role in advancing and pushing a particular religious identity. If you look outside of the U S if you look at Turkey, for example, or if you look at um, to a lesser extent, maybe the, the Soviet union under Putin, uh, you know, they, they use the, they use religion as a tool, right. And to, to advance kind of their own, powers, their own prerogatives, their own authority. I think that's what Philip is getting at, right? It's, it's a government that's going well beyond its, its competencies, its limits, right? And that, that's, that, I think that's absolutely a danger that we could be, could be well, and should be concerned about. And Hungary, I mean, is another example right now. Right? Yeah, Orban's another example, absolutely. You want to comment any more on that, Philip? About- no, I, I agree with, with Mark. I mean, I think uh, um, state overreach is a constant danger uh and um you know traditionally it's the union of church and state it's not just that right and um it's, it's the state infused with um radical or fanatical ideologies which are danger dangerous and religion can be one of these so it's it's always a, a danger yeah so as we talk about um you know freedom of religion and um i i just want to ask one more question about this like are there any boundaries to this? You know, because there are some pretty extreme belief sets out there. And are we obligated to protect those, um, the Moors, the sovereign citizens, the Quiverful movement who hold um, some beliefs that may be anti-state? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, here civic education, to, to return to an earlier thing we talked about, is very important, right? Um, this this nation was built on um, some core principles, uh, and not always uh, sufficiently realized for sure. But right, the equality of all individuals that we all have rights. Uh, it's not only you don't you don't have rights because you're a member of a certain religious sect or a non-member, right? You have um, uh, an innate human dignity. Every individual does, uh, and then there are real limitations on what the state can do. Uh, so I actually think the, the surest way to protect against these uh, contemporary fanatical groups um, is to uh, recur to these principles and to realize them better in practice than we have than we have in, in the past. Um, uh, the principles are good and true, and I you know I believe in real limits on the state, and uh, those limits require a real separation uh, of church and state. It doesn't mean that uh, religious citizens are excluded from equal participation in the government. That's that's not true either. That's to exclude people because of, of the religious uh, beliefs. Um, I, maybe I'm naive, but I, I have I have a general faith in the American, you know, people. Uh, we're relatively sensible people. And, and uh, I tend to think if we got lawyers out of the business of governing us, most most people are relatively tolerant and, uh, uh, you know, whatever their neighbor's differences will respect their differences. So um, I, I hope that's not naive, but uh, um, I think the good sense of the American people and our, our tolerant core um, uh, is still there. And I, and I hope programs like this uh, nurture 
Well, thanks. Um, Mark, comment on the, the fanatical aspect of it. I, it was the Moors that were on their way up to Maine for military training when they got pulled over. Well, I think that for, for me, the key there in terms of the role the state should play in, in kind of policing that kind of stuff, if any, I think we have to go back to a distinction that many of the founders made, perhaps most explicitly Jefferson. We have to make the distinction between belief and action, right? In terms of belief, uh, founders, Jefferson in particular, would believe, and I would agree that the state really should play no role uh, in um, policing or moderating belief, right? Um, now, civil society, as Philip pointed out, kind of working to cultivate sound morality, that's a different story. But the role of the state in policing belief is, is minimal, if not non-existent. On the other hand, once belief crosses the line into action, then Jefferson and the founders would say the state can, um, and in some cases obligated to, to take action, um, especially if that action growing out of a belief is violating the liberties or freedoms of, of another citizen, right? So yeah. I think that's a, a critical distinction here is you're free to believe whatever you want to believe. Um, but once you start to act on those beliefs, then the state can potentially um, step in and, and take some steps. We're running out of time, and um, this was a great conversation, but I want to give you each a, a few minutes to wrap it up. And um, Philip, why don't you go first? Just take a minute or two to give us your parting thoughts on this topic. Well, yeah, no, I mean, just to say thank you, actually, for uh, uh, allowing me to participate. I mean, these, these issues are not simple. Um, so if you've been listening and found them confusing, uh, I'd say to try reading Supreme Court opinions, which are very confusing on, on, these, on these matters. So um, uh, public education on these topics is very important, and I uh, applaud you for doing so. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to spend this uh, little bit of time with you. Thank you. What about you, Mark? Parting sh shots of politics and religion in America? Well, I, I do. I do think that if you look back over the course of American history, you find you know ebbs and flows, right, of tension surrounding religion and politics. You know, sometimes the tension waxes, sometimes it wanes. Um, and right now, we tend to be you know on a, a maybe a period of increased tension and conflict there. Um, I guess the one the one thing that I would, if I could, have my my druthers and direct people to go and look at and maybe give some serious thought to about. The thing about religion in American politics is read a document produced by James Madison uh, called the Memorial and Remonstrance, right? And it's a it's a document that is still regularly cited in establishment clause cases by the court today. Um, I think it lays out um, a lot of key concerns about the intermingling of religion and politics, and has a very clear eyed look at what some of the dangers might be. Um, so I guess I'd point people in that direction if they're so inclined. And the last thing I'd say is just to echo what Philip said, you know, I've, this is, I don't know, I don't know, fourth or fifth time on this program. And the discussions are always fabulous. Um, they examine important topics that um, all citizens uh, should spend a lot more time thinking about. So um, thank you as always, Anne, for having me on. Um, and it's my um, honor to be on with such a scholar as, as Philip. Um, everyone should go and read his work. Well, I really appreciate the kudos from you both, but I want to uh, just like, if we're going to pull up this Madison thing and at, and what are the dangers, just give us the last chapter. Like, what was he worried about of the dangers there? I'll, I'll let Philip go first on this one, because this is something he discusses a lot in a number of his works. So, and then I'll chime in after if there's time or, or in, inclination. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, no, no. So Madison, um, 
Madison was very much aware of the potential for religion and other ideologies to um, um, corrupt democracy. Uh, maybe I can use that's not his term. That's my term. Um, so he, he tried to channel disagreement, in, including religious disagreement, through the political process. I think Madison's been misunderstood here. Mark alluded to this earlier. Um, it, it's not our our instincts today are to try to exclude people because we disagree with them. You know, you have beliefs I dislike, therefore I want to marginalize you and not let you to particip participate. You let you participate in politics. Uh, Madison's instincts were actually to channel religious disagreement and other disagreement into a well-functioning constitutional system. And in a well-functioning constitutional system, we could add today an economic system as well, um, these, these disagreements can be moderated. When you're, when you're trying to advance your interests and you realize you need other people's cooperation, you tend to be more tolerant about those other people. And so what I would like to see the American people in general do is, is lower the stakes of politics, be more tolerant of one another, you know, accept that we're not all the same and we have different beliefs, but we can still live together and be good neighbors. And I think this was part of Madison's political project, as it were, um, to tamper religious enthusiasm and also a religious exclusion. Last, last word, Mark, very quickly. No, I think I think, you know, Philip's absolutely right. You know, Madison is he wouldn't again this he would not use this term, but um, modern scholars would, would point to Madison as kind of one of the, the fathers or really champions of a pluralistic system. Right. Where we're all all views are brought into the system. And then as part of as long as the system is well designed, which Madison was arguing the Constitution was that that system will then moderate those views, force negotiation, force compromise and end up with a product that can be acceptable to all. That Let's hope for that more civic engagement. That's what we like to hear. We are now out of time. Um, thanks to our guests this afternoon, Mark Brewer, Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine, and Vincent Philip Munoz, Tocqueville Associate Professor of Religion and Public Life, the Department of Political Science, concurrently Associate Professor of Law at Notre Dame University. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERM. W-E-R-U-F-M, streaming live at WERU.org. The League's website is LWVME.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in the series. Subscribe to our podcast at LWVME.org. We'll see you here next month. Okay.